0: I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning. podcast featuring two guys just shooting the breeze on international trade, business, and expat life.
1: On today's episode, we'll update you on the tsunami of spending by rich folks post-pandemic China again, and the virtual return of ABBA. We'll hear uh, Artie on that one. And later, we'll talk with Lars Carlson about how he and Maersk see the future of customs and borders, and he'll reveal his favorite Swedish band. Hint, you've never heard of him. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. So
0: without further ado, hold on to your hats. I got it. It's said. It's done. Don't do, it's do done. it. It's done. Moving don't on. Do to cut.
1: I know we have to start with the listener feedback, Artie. But uh, before we get into the segment, I wanted to let you and uh, also our listeners know that despite supply chain problems throughout the world, which we'll be talking about at length again, the chairs I ordered in January were finally delivered this week. So everybody rest easy. I have my three chairs. Uh, It doesn't mark the end of my personal supply chain crisis. The bike I ordered in June, which was 42 days away at that time, is still 42 days away. And it remains 42 days away, pretty much in perpetuity. So it could be worse,
0: could be better, but could definitely be, (laughs) could be 43 days away.
1: Well, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, maybe it's a
0: psychological, yeah. Anyway, that does it for our white people problem segment. I I also have something to say. Please. We'll be talking about FC Malmo later on. Malmo, but yeah. Yeah, sorry. I didn't know your Swedish was so well refined. Just take a chance on me. Damn it. I wish I thought of that. Anyway, we can move on now to some good news, which is that uh, it's now officially been one year since Trace Planning has launched. Did you know that? I did not know that. Because we've been having so much fun.
1: It's gone like much a much shorter period than one year. It's
0: like having a kid they just grow up so fast,
1: yeah, I've got a slight tear in my eye.
0: I can see it. <laughs> I can see it if I look really closely with the microscope,
1: so I think one year ago, I told you already this was a bad idea, and I think it's you know maybe this would be a time when I could say it's a slightly better idea than I thought.
0: yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. That's like Rob's way of saying, <laughs> thanks.
1: I know you're too big to say something like, I told you so. You would never go there. This would not be you. This is not you at all, Artie, so that's not what you're going to say.
0: You know me too well, Rob. I think it's a great thing. I couldn't believe when we look back that it's been actually one year since we first launched, 23 episodes later. Not a huge amount, but I think we're quality over substance, which is the important thing. I think our listeners would agree. And I think the only reason you're here is because we keep getting all this positive feedback, also because I'm deleting all of the negative emails. I don't so ever don't see,
1: see any them. email, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I just still don't know the password.
0: No, I think we want to thank all our listeners and, and people we've met for all of the really positive feedback and some of the constructive criticism. For example... Stop breathing so heavily. Thanks, is, honey. Which is mainly me. <laughs> Don't call me honey. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, we just want to say thank you to everybody for continuing. And the guests
1: who uh, are still coming on.
0: Who have, to use that APA expression, taken a chance and um, gotten all aboard the uh, trades planning train also want to thank michelle of course the whole been, team for getting us to the point where we are and i think we're looking forward to at least one more year <laughs> yes <laughs> we'll give it a year we go week by week we go yeah exactly but i think there are bigger and better things coming for for our listeners so stay tuned for more and i'm um, glad you've been with us for this point point. and uh,
1: this could be our year where we go revenue positive
0: yeah i mean it took amazon like 15 years before they made a book and Jeff yeah. Bezos was a billionaire before then, so I think there's... there's yeah, hope. we're right on track, basically. There's hope.
1: It's going good. Yeah,
0: I mean, he just sold a vision, and what we're selling. A vision of a not-boring trade, business, and politics podcast.
1: Yeah, so I can go to space now? <laughs> can, I a can I have a jumpsuit? Can I have a hat?
0: And an Omega Speedmaster? <laughs> You've got the rights, st- and a cowboy hat. Yeah, cool. Damn that cowboy hat to hell. Anyway, moving on, moving on. One listener tells us that as a former expat who lived in Geneva and worked on trade issues, this person (laughs) enjoyed the substantive trade analysis and discussions about life in Switzerland. Very good. And I think that's a really nice way of putting it. It's a very nice way of putting it. Also,
1: Artie, I thought you might mention we have various listeners who are mentioning
0: us in their Twitter posts. Yeah, these have been going up in number. Josh Wickerham had actually posted about us and his big head being on a panel, head and shoulders above everybody else. He is. If anybody's seen the tweet, he, his head is enormous. And we just want to say, Josh, keep doing what you're keep doing. Keep up
1: the good work. Keep referencing us. And hopefully the rest of your body catches up to the head. If any of you are posting on social, pretty much any platform, you can put at Tradesplaining. We
0: literally picked the only name that nobody else had. Just put just put, at, just put hashtag at Tradesplaining. And I know you've got something. Right? I did get
1: something back from the, from the close group of listening friends. Comrades. He said that he was happy that we were back on. He said he enjoyed the episode immensely, although he was hoping for obvious signs of intoxication, which he did not detect. Well, I would
0: say that he was not listening hard enough. <laughs> my mother-in-law said I have a good radio voice, even though I'm not on the radio. Not that I want to make it about me. It is about you. She made it about me when she said I had a good radio voice. Yeah. It is about me. It's our podcast.
1: Do you often get positive comments from your mother-in-law? That sounds a
0: little... Uh... <laughs> she said sometimes my jokes go too far. This is real life, not on the podcast. But she she is constructively criticizing me all the time. Okay. That is a really positive way to put it. Anyway, and that's the way the cookie (laughs) crumbles.
1: Thanks for all the feedback, everybody. If you want to give us feedback and haven't yet been able to
0: do so, please write to us at... We usually say this at the end. You do. That's why it's not in the script. Keep that feedback coming, folks. Let's just jump right into this episode's news roundup. Rob, why don't you start us off? Because you've done quite a good job of rounding up the news. Thank you very much. And I was up real early doing it. So supply chain is still messed up. Well, this really changed things. We've been talking about this ad nauseum. That's brushing up on my Latin means a lot. What are we missing here? Tell us. Yeah, I think we were, again, picking up a lot
1: of stories about the same issues. And we should try to think about what are the implications for the future. We know there's issues with empty shelves in the UK. We know US ports are, again, reporting a lot of congestion. They're talking about overlaps now. So whatever was a seasonal rush is now overlapping with people building inventories and with delayed deliveries. We know freight rates have gone up. Jan Hoffman has, has explained that to us. Container shortages. People can't get containers containers are sitting full of stuff on not unloaded. And we also hear about the shortage of staff in the transportation industry. So UK talks about 100,000 truck drivers they need to hire in order to really be up to capacity.
0: We also see this in home building in the U.S. recently. Absolutely. And the U.S. has the same kind of shortages. So
1: is there anything we can draw in terms of conclusions after a year uh, of all of this and after repeated stories and so on? And we've heard also about the chip shortage, and you'll talk about that in a minute, uh, Artie. So I I guess we start to try to think, what what are the implications going to be? And I'd say number one implication is that the transport industry is hiring. And they have to hire massively, and they have to figure out how to retain people. Even before the pandemic, they were people were turning over a lot. It's an arduous job. It's a thankless job. It's not hugely paid. You have to be on the road all the time. And the industry had gotten efficient, meaning the trucks are always on the road, so you don't you never get home. So they're trying to hire people, but they talk a lot more about retention, and they talk a lot about even trying to bring different groups who. Don't drive right now, including in the U.S. We're talking about teenagers, do you want an 18-year-old that's driving your tractor trailer?
0: Well, you can shoot a gun at like eight in the U.S. You want well <laughs> to exactly. drive a tractor? You
1: can invade Iraq at 16, yeah. but you can't drive a tractor trailer. So that's one thing. And I think they also—I I think personally—that the transport industry will change as well. And this is a huge incentive. Maybe it's not a good thing to move towards automation and having fewer people involved in the process. So you're going to see more and more, I don't know what it's going to be, drones, driverless trucks and so on.
0: It's interesting for me in the fact that these companies are being forced to look at raising wages for these drivers, which is not something we really saw as the trend line, right? We saw that the wages were stagnating or going down in many cases as automation was rising. But now because of COVID, you have this glut, you have this supply and demand shock and then they have a need for these drivers. So they're, they're being forced to pay them more. At the same time, it's, as you said, it's heightening this need for for driverless cars or driverless trucks. Tesla is, has been in the news in the last year or 18 months or so. I think that the technology is not ready probably for large-scale implementation. So that's where the rub is, right? It's probably not a bad thing that we're seeing a rise in wages for many of these sectors, but then will that lead to prolonged inflation or commodity spikes that we've been seeing? We've been saying are a short-term effect. And that's a, an interesting dilemma that I, as I see it, absolutely. The second thing I think we, we've seen is that companies
1: are increasing the size of their inventories. So just-in-time, of course, fell apart. You can't have the parts when you want them. You order it, doesn't arrive. The systems we have to predict when shipments will arrive don't work. So now we're, we have people that are building inventories. That's part of the reason that there's such a such a, a logjam right now. And. That I think we're going to see is, is a lasting situation where you have people building inventories, diversifying supply chains. We don't want to be in one place anymore in case there's a cutoff and maybe some shortening of supply chains. We want to cut two or three people out of the chain in order to simplify. We'll see. And I guess there will be some long-term investment. So we know that 2018-19, there was a glut of ships. Some ships were taken out of, were taken out of service. Then, of course, there was a collapse in, in early 2020 and now, will we see more ships coming online? It's it's uh, I think it's an open
0: question. So we need to watch for these kinds of, of
1: developments as we go. So
0: you may not like it, but spending by the rich on a luxury boom has been leading the U.S. economic recovery. It also might make your watch more expensive. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Sure. The Washington Post did a very nice analytical piece on the fact that a lot of companies are chasing after more affluent customers and more luxury type segments of their industries. They, they unwind it into some very nice data, but the reason is that the U.S. economy is driven a lot by discretionary spending. And a lot of that discretionary spending, so money people have in their pockets, is driven by high earners, people who have money. And in the pandemic, of course, they've done extremely well. So top 10% added to 17 trillion to their net wealth since 2018, and a lot of it the last couple of years. What well, we in the economics area like to call a lot and they they've also have massive amounts of cash. They want to buy stuff, they want to do cool things, and they're going on a luxury buying spree. And this is in some ways leading the US economic recovery and the global economic recovery. And they're taking up more and more of the buying space, so companies are more and more focused on them. And you see, of course, absurd things like an Oceana cruise around the world option, so the cheapest ticket is $46,000 a person, the most expensive 160,000. In tourism especially will be affected People are looking for the the best experience. They have money, and tourism companies are going up and up and up the segments to try to attract these people in, in, into into more and more, let's say, luxury type events. And even companies like Uniqlo and J Crew are also coming out with things that are in higher price points. They're following.
0: You know how I know you don't shop at Uniqlo because you called it Uniqlo. Uniqlo. It's Uniqlo. I have stopped there, shopped, even shopped there. You've stopped, but never shopped. No, Celeste told
1: me to shop there, and I did, and I got pants that had elastic on the bottom of them. You ripped it? To the leg. No, it makes me look like I'm wearing pajamas. Svelte? (laughs) <laughs> I can't wear them. They make me look like I'm wearing pajamas. So, no, where's you're that? not the target market. Anyway, moving on. We also see that rich parents are, are, are deluging their kids with with different kinds of spending, learning pods and all these kinds of things. And education, of course, has a luxury segment as well. So... In general, the rich, you know, are getting richer, companies are focusing more and more
0: on them, and we see the trend going in that direction. And I know they, it's having an effect on Swiss system.
1: watches. Tell me about it.
0: Yeah, that's true. So you talked about the, this luxury segment being a bigger and bigger part, and there's, I think, nothing really sums it up better than buying a luxury watch, which is a piece of machinery which is obsolete, but yet we still buy because... The best it, ones tell both the time and the date. And sometimes can can time things as well. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. so these are obsolete pieces of, of machinery which people still keep gobbling up at record numbers. So the New York Times had a report recently and they put the value of certain watches having gone up at least 50 to 75% on average in the last two years, which is unheard of, I think, if you're talking to people who have been into watches for, you know, 20 or more years. Again, these are watches that are in this 30000 to $100,000 range. So, nice watches. Yeah, really nice watches, one could say. Yeah. Uh, and so they are appreciating to, to obnoxiously large absurd amounts. There's a $30,000 watch from Patek Philippe, which they no longer make anymore. They announced they're no longer making. And somebody who was used to be a dealer in the industry, he sold it at auction. This is a $30,000 watch at retail, which is probably not even worth 30000 but you buy it for the brand. Time and the date, mind you. And it's selling like hotcakes. At auction, it sold for 500000 dollars, including whatever fee that the auction house got. Seems like good money. Anyway, all this tells us that we need to be even more careful on thinking of how not to make this pandemic just another story of accentuating wealth gaps that are already existing. I would go further as to say that if you're looking at the luxury segment in particular, you're seeing as this wealth gap increases, you're seeing, as you said, pivot more towards this higher value added luxury goods, Mercedes G-Wagon that is covered in Hermes, Leather and things—really ridiculous things—that you wouldn't have thought about when I was growing up. God, God forbid, we'll say when you were growing up, we didn't. The covered wagons didn't have any of that. Yeah, we'll talk about that a bit later on. Maybe why some are saying the brand, the age of brands is dead. I would disagree a little bit, especially when you're talking about luxury. So i mean, really the question is, brands are dead, depending on whether you have yeah. the money to spend. Okay. But again, it's super interesting to see and taking one segment in particular, we talk a lot about this in a a meta level, but looking at watches and and how it's affected, how the pandemic has has accentuated trends. Again, we've been seeing for such a long time, but it's taken it to a stratospheric level is really interesting. With that said, before you get too excited and go bid on a watch, if you've got 100 or 500K lying around for that Patek Philippe Nautilus, China with a Y, I don't know why it's written here with a Y, is doing things that may affect markets, particularly luxury markets in the near future. So Rob, tell us a little bit more about that. Sure China
1: as we know has been on a spree so that they've been cracking down on foreign listings of tech firms you and I uh, talked about that other uh, last uh, last one or the one before they've been restricting minors use of video games so they've been saying what is it 1 hour a night uh, a couple of hours on the weekends and holidays they've been banning men they see as effeminate because it's somehow not in line with some value or other i guess i can't go to china so it's so it's really i mean there's so many things happening at once in terms of let's say regulation or pressure that the, the government is placing on different markets that you could you can easily quickly get overwhelmed by it. But there's a couple that I did want to talk about. One is, I think we, we talked last time about the fact that they put a data protection rule in place. Now they're looking closely at pioneering regulation on use of algorithms. And I I think that that, along with an announcement they made about trying to reduce inequality and reduce luxury spend, also may move markets. So this could be very significant. And I think that that could be pioneering in the sense that if they do it and people start to see "Mm, that seems to work or seems to have some impact, there may be an expectation other markets will do it too. And we all can see a potentially positive thing there because we are getting deluged with recommendations for stuff. Like uh, Audemars Piguet watches. For me, it's mainly things to prevent belly fat. Prevent more like. Don't eat bananas. I don't know. reverse. I have no idea why they, I don't, (laughs) thank you. Yeah. Whatever the hell it is. Obviously it's not working. And, um, on the other side, they 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 had a commission that announced that, that they would like to focus more on the common good than on uh, people getting rich, basically, and that the government would prioritize this, including hinting at possible redistribution. Now, we know China's huge in the kind of like pure luxury segment. Forty-five percent, some of the estimate watches, as well. watches is part of that. Forty-five percent of all these purchases are made in in uh, China, and I saw an analysis was in the FT that this may be by about hundred thousand people. So these are huge, huge buyers. So if they're suddenly told, "Don't do this anymore," it could have a massive ripple effect on luxury brands. So let's see. It could range from anything. From one analyst said there'll be fewer logos on things things will look less flashy, but you can still spend a lot. Two things like luxury taxes, social media crackdowns, border measures, and so on. So let's see if that happens. As I say, this could have an effect throughout markets. So it's something to take a look at, but it's also something that tells us maybe China in some ways is leading the regulatory wave. They may be getting out ahead of things before the US and the EU who
0: used to lead Mm. I think yes and no. I think yes, in the sense that they are able to do things that the EU and, and the US can't. The US or the EU are just structurally not able to to pass laws as quickly by virtue of being, you know, democratic institutions, whereas China, there's a one party rule and they can make these types of decisions quicker, for better or for worse. I would I would be a bit hesitant, though, because I think the companies like in, whether it's luxury goods or automakers or, or what, what have you, companies that have been piling into China for the last 20 years have been doing so, making their their strategic investments and bets based on the premise that China would be operating along the same rules that they've been accustomed to for the, let's say, since post-World War II, right? And what we're finding is that in many cases, those were incorrect because they're not playing by these same rules in many cases. So they can make these types of, I don't want to say, I don't know if draconian is the right word, but abrupt changes in policy, which we just would not expect or would not that we would not expect, we would not accept in the U.S. Or, or Europe or other parts of the world. So I think that also needs to be factored in. Now, my question would be, will these companies then change, change course? Because if you talk to, to bankers in, in Geneva... A few of them will tell you that they would not advise their, their clients to, to invest in China at this point just because it, you can't be certain that one government rule change would wipe out any investment you make on a Monday having made it on a Friday. So that uncertainty on a policy level is making them hesitant to invest. Now, my question is, Will will these long-term investments from these companies... Change will that change their thinking?
1: Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of instability right now in China, and we and a lot of
0: value has been lost for investors very, very, very quickly. And another thing that you're saying that I think it also highlights a point: China is is a country. If you're looking at strictly demographics, it's a country that will be aging very quickly because of choices they've made in terms of one-child policy and things like this in the past. And they've got this burgeoning middle class. And I think the middle class makes up a larger proportion population-wise than the rich, the uber-rich or the uber-poor. And so they're they're taking these steps to get ahead of, like you said, any potential issues that they may have with middle-class people feeling like they are not getting ahead as they should be as China continues its economic yeah. economic growth. Well,
1: I think that's a probably a very good way to look at it, that it's not just some kind of arbitrary chairman Xi thing, but it's actually them reacting to demographic changes and to demand in a way among not the, not they're getting everything exactly in line with demand but they're trying to respond
0: to to things that are really that are real mm. So with that said, has any of this changed our buying behavior? Because you are still buying bikes and craft chairs at an alarmingly high rate. What does this mean for the engagement of companies, for example, companies that we work with? Sure.
1: So I think I saw a piece of analysis, which I'm interested to hear your reaction on. Lockdowns forced uh, consumers to remain at home. We know folks became very satisfied or very comfortable with e-commerce. So there's a there's a huge growth, 10 years of growth in one year, one quarter. And tons and tons of information, word of mouth, I'm putting in air quotes, but basically reviews online. They can't see you putting in air quotes, but he is saying it, folks. So there's tons of ratings, reviews, reactions to stuff, and that this starts to overwhelm or become more important than the power of brand. So I'm not going to care that it's a particular brand that provided it, but I'm going to care about the engagement of others in that brand and the reviews and the word of mouth about that brand and that the old levers of brand equities, the the old things that made brand valuable, like more ads more promotions, and so on, are now less and less important. And what's kind of much more important is this engagement with customers. Are customers talking about you online? Are they reviewing you? Are they positive? And that companies now have to be good at that and less good at the other stuff. And this probably kind of feeds in, at least in my mind, to a narrative where the Nestle's of the world were either stagnating or going down in many segments. Because the the old kind of brand value of an Oreo Delicious, by the way. But has it changed your behavior? Do you care where it's coming from or do you just want to see engagement in a brand? Is that what makes you buy?
0: I, I read this and I thought that with all due respect, I think they are right in in, in a small regard in terms of the conclusions of the report. But I think on, on the whole, I think you would have to say that brand doesn't matter if you are in a certain group. Right? So if you are not able to afford luxury products solely, right, then brand doesn't matter to you because you're looking for the quickest, cheapest, fastest solution. to so it never some matters. Your needs. You could say when brands were affordable, so I don't know, I'm thinking of Mad Men here when they were selling, there were a hundred different types of cigarettes that they were trying to sell to the you know, mass market consumer, it was one thing. But Apple does not care that maybe 80% of its uh, client, I'm, I'm pulling out numbers out of my hat, but say the majority of the U.S. can't afford an iPad or a Mac. What they care about is percentage or that portion that can't, and they will buy a Mac because it's cool. I'm abbreviating here. I think brand does matter. I don't think that's gone. I think the way we measure or we engage with customers has changed and is changing. So Don Draper is not writing us copy after, you know, a night of drinking half a bottle of scotch, but rather, as you said, it's about driving engagement and raising awareness about things your brand is doing. If you take a luxury segment, we talked about watches before, take a brand like Cartier. They are known for their jewelry. They're known for making beautiful things, watches being one of them. Right. So they've just come out with a solar powered version of the Cartier Tank. You'd probably say it's one of the most famous iconic watches in, in existence. They've come out with a solar powered version specifically to target younger generation, younger even than me at a relatively attractive price point that gets you into this luxury segment, right? Not only that, but they're making the, they're not using alligator leather or actual leather anymore, but they're using vegan leather made from something like, I don't know, banana peels that are recycled. And so they're doing this in a way to attract, as I said, this younger, more socially aware segment of the market. And they're doing that again as a luxury brand. They're not dumbing down the product. It's not getting it to them as fast as cheaply as possible, but it's doing it in a way that attracts them, checks a bunch of these boxes. So I don't, I think brand still matters very much. I think the way that brands communicate this is is changing, as it should be, because it's been 50, 40 years that we've been operating on one kind of a model. With that said, I, I, I do really want that Cartier tank. I hear that. That's coming out very, it's very clearly. leather. Come on, man. <laughs> I, th- I think you're you're right.
1: I'm kind of hopeful. For instance, for the small companies we work with, because this costs less than a massive promotion, or it costs less than ads. You can do engagement with your your customers. Now I know bigger companies have more people and they can put more resources into it in a different way. But I think in a way, it's it's a more even playing field. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of advice I know that we're giving small companies. You have to be present online. You have to be responsive. You have to know who your customers are. But you don't have to build a stand outside RFK
0: Stadium in Washington in order to attract customers. You do it a different way. And so it it has changed things. I, I guess this is where the brand experience comes in. So if you're talking about, you mentioned Nestle before, I don't think many people would associate coffee as an ultra luxury segment, right? Certainly not the same as you would a luxury watch. So Cartier and Rolex and Nestle, maybe leaders in their field, are not necessarily at the same status, if you will. Do you think we can get a sponsor from the watch industry if we keep this we up? We should. But I mean, I'm, I don't know what's gotten into me. <laughs> Just, <laughs> anyway, the point being, I think it really depends on which type of market you're, you're talking about and which product segment, right? So I don't think and it's... And of course, I guess we're, to, we're we're mainly thinking
1: about right now consumers in in rich countries. So you don't have to be rich, but you, you, you're in a country where you have the luxury to think about uh, customer reviews, even if it's about a wooden spoon or a serving dish. A
0: handcrafted wooden spoon made by vegan leather makers. Yeah, that would be me not buying that In product. In the Amazon rainforest. To be continued. Did I mention they're made by hand? <laughs> the power of brand <laughs> and the power of
1: timeless timepieces. Uh, you, 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 you never
0: own a blank. You just pass it on to the next poor schmuck. Lars Carlson is Global Head of Trade and Customs Consulting at Maersk. Before joining KGH, Lars was the Director of the World Customs Organization. Prior to this, he was also Director General of Swedish Customs. My old job. Throughout
1: his career, Lars has served as senior advisor to governments, international institutions, and multinational companies all around the world in the areas of customs, borders, and trade. He's also written several books about customs, which he freely admits he is a topic that he loves. I, I wouldn't have guessed. And has published numerous articles on customs and trade policy topics in various academic publications. Perhaps more importantly, he's a fan of all things F.C. Malmö, Bruce Springstein,
0: and Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Three things you would not think to hear in one sentence? <laughs> Put those things together, and what do you got? Artie. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: exactly.
0: So, Lars,
2: thanks for joining us on this latest episode of Trades Planning. Where does this podcast find you? So thank you very much for inviting me. I'm actually in the south of Sweden right now. Like everybody else, I'm, I'm stuck here. But soon out on the uh, road again, I hope, with everybody else. But as we say, it's, a, it's a great to be on. Thank you very much. Honored and, and, and a pleasure to be here. A
0: pleasure for us as well. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself for the viewers who may not be familiar with you? How did you get into the field of trade and what's the journey been like? And their listeners. There are listeners. There are many listeners. Not so many viewers.
2: I, I'm a customs guy. I've been been customs since I was born. Basically, I've uh, now spent 35 years in customs, borders, and and trade policy. I, I actually got into to customs very early. It's the only job I ever applied for was Swedish customs. I was just out of many kilos ago, uh, Swedish Navy seals I mean, I did a good career there. A couple of years uh, went into studies, and I did some semi professional handle play as well and i just wanted needed a a temporary job it became more than a temporary job so i got into customs uh, did a career in swedish customs european union ended up actually as acting director general swedish customs then i was nominated by government to go to world customs organization so i did a spell six years in Brussels with World Customs Organization. Got back into Swedish government and was recruited to a company called KGH. Was there from uh, 2012 until two weeks ago. Because in October uh, last year, Mersk Shipping bought KGH. KGH is now the Customs Competence Center of Mersk Shipping. And I have now moved on since 1st of August to Mersk as the global head of uh, trading customs consulting. We're on a great journey there. So that's a little bit a short version of where I come from and how I got into the business. Excellent.
0: And in in your opinion, how do you think things have changed since when you started? If we're talking, you know, big picture, what are the most important areas you think that you're or things that you're looking at when it comes to trade as we move forward?
2: No, absolutely. It's been a tremendous journey during 35 years, as I said, specifically, as you would say, the last 10, 15 years, because trade is totally different today. Globalization has certainly made its impact. Fifteen years ago, we we read books about globalization. We didn't know what it was. And then, of course, you have a number of global crises. Obviously, what has happened is that at the same time, global trade has changed tremendously. The supply chains are totally different. The value chains are extremely different than before. And all of this put tremendous pressure on the trading system, I would say. And at the same time, the trading system has changed the world. Countries like Korea has moved from being a really poor country to one of leading economies in world through trade policy and customs policy and and of course that is you know how we actually fight poverty that how we create growth and jobs these days so it's a dynamic really fun area to be in people think it's boring with customs and borders it's not it's the most sexy thing in the world think borders think customs think sexy very and has has
1: pandemic made you more optimistic less optimistic do you see it as just one other thing or is it really different?
2: No, it, it is a black swan. Obviously, it's something that happened that have a major impact on international trade and, and what we do. But there will be more of those. Uh, and there have been in the past as well. The, what we saw in the beginning of the pandemic was as you, even discussions around deglobalization, about local sourcing, warehousing again, local production. But the, the overall mega trends have yet been enforced during the the, the pandemic. So global trade that's actually and to some extent the border smart border management that we do today has helped actually fighting the effects of coronavirus and ensuring medicines coming through and all along but the trade patterns are still there it's the opposite people are home under restrictions and they buy stuff and they buy stuff from all around the world without knowing how it will actually get to your doorstep and that's global trade
1: can you tell me where those chairs are that i ordered in january
0: I can find it out. There's a QR code for that, Rob.
1: <laughs> can you tell Habitat Swiss because it's been since January? They said they're just around the corner.
0: We call this a white people problem.
2: <laughs> they probably are. Have you been out around the corner and checked? It might yes, be exactly. there. It might
0: there's literally be a there. store down the block. Yeah, exactly.
2: You should you should have a musk to deliver it
1: to. It would have been there. <laughs> Real time track your shipment with Lars Carlson. But maybe just I mean to, to explore like the future of trade a little bit more. Ten years from now, will we be? Polar ice caps will be
0: gone. Ships will be floating above the water. I mean, give us Ke- Kevin Costner will be
2: <laughs> Waterworld, <laughs> riding
0: some some ship made out of driftwood.
2: I definitely don't believe in Kevin <laughs> Costner from Waterworld for many good reasons. And and it's it's interesting because. It is not that difficult in itself, but it is difficult to actually do these things. And that's why it's taken some time. So the maturity of the global supply chain, we don't produce things in one place and sell it somewhere else anymore. We produce everywhere, sell it everywhere. And of course, a, a journey of a product during development is goes through multiple borders during the development of that product. And it's not, again, automobile or space or aircraft anymore. It's everything. And of course, sometimes it passes a border multiple times. That is really the problem with Brexit, for instance. People didn't realize how integrated those value chains actually were. And that will continue. The, the, even if we have trade wars, we have uh, erasing protectionism, you have things like the pandemic, then the integration of the supply chain and the value chains will increase even more. And that is also how developing countries and small and medium-sized companies get into these bigger international trade systems. The key will be management of information. How do we get access to real information source data? commercial data as soon as possible can do all the checks and necessary controls in a secure and compliant way through things like trade lens and blockchains, for instance, and then how to use and reuse that data to actually get a seamless trade. One of the things we've been talking about on and off,
1: of course, is Brexit, but in particular this kind of what seems like a fantastical idea of a borderless border in Northern Ireland is going to have like a zipless... It's a great alliteration, (laughs) a borderless border. Is it possible? can Can you just like not have... You don't have a border. You have some sort of magical electronic thing tell me the qr this, code
2: blockchain is this a fantasy or can we can we do this The thing? fantastic unicorn no 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 yes. i get so angry really agitated about because i'm passionate about customs as you already have have discovered right of course you can have a seamless border it, it's been possible to do that for 10 years the technology is there the models are we know how to do it we can do it we could have done it in ireland as well but in reality yes we already have it bits and pieces what people have prioritized in some countries like the US-Canada fast, the the Swedish-Norwegian border, these examples that always comes up. But why are they then not uh, advanced more than they have? Well, the reason is there hasn't been a reason for it. Nobody has left the customs union before, for instance. But if they did, that's why you you would actually implement borders. The borders we see today are 50 years old. They were designed in the 70s and the 60s. And of course, you wouldn't design a border the same way today. So it's not rocket science. You can do it. I can do it. And if there's political will, it's possible to put a border into place to do that. And I would say it's one of the best investments a government can do. And I've said this in many developing countries. It is about technology, but not only technology. It's about going from transaction controls, transaction ways of looking at data, to system-based controls, to actually, again, trusted trader programs and these type of different elements where you actually know who is coming. Now, the vision of UK in UK border strategy 2025 or a leading customs administration or government like Netherlands is that 90% should be known before it approaches the border. So if 90% of the people, 90% of the goods that is coming well, then you, of course, can have a different approach to how they pass the border seamlessly because you already know, you already done the vetting, you already done the risk management, you already know the intelligence of what is coming. It's only about verifying that it's actually me that is coming or that company or that goods.
0: I, I, I think we talk a lot about, and with good reason, about the, the positive benefits in terms of quantifying positively why going digital in this case was is better for trade, reducing friction, reducing cost at the borders. But we talk, you were talking a little about North Ireland. I think the flip side of that, if you're talking qualitatively, is that you could make a case that this is a way to ease political tensions if you're taking the case of, of Northern Ireland. So if there was a way of having this done in, in a way that made sense, you could see that this not being as big an issue as it has been in the news especially the last
2: six six to eight months or so no very much northern ireland is of course an episode of 10 of its own i worked a lot with it some since 2016 so but you're absolutely right obviously a free-flowing still secure and safe trade is one of the best drivers for whatever we want to do if it's growth or security or whatever it is you know that's how you work together and the whole idea of actually working together is how you avoid also other political type of crisis. So the counterbalance of, of protectionism or, or these type of trade wars that's going on, you know, is actually making the trade move even quicker, better, more inclusive. Then, of course, you get uh, the benefits and reap the harvest of that from political level, from the economic level. If so that's only win-win into this. It's a super interesting topic
0: we could probably spend another couple episodes just diving into. But since most of our listeners are of the millennial persuasion they do have an we're attention like they yeah. do yeah. Uh, yes exactly <laughs> we're, we're, you're, that's, that, yeah. that's pushing it but gen, anyway gen z yeah. <laughs> you're gen something anyway yeah. since most of them have a short attention span maybe we'll switch over to the next question which we wanted to get to and maybe it's a bit more personal in nature and that is we have a lot of listeners as i said and people who, who write us that are at an early part of their careers right what advice do you think would you give to your younger self when starting out your career
2: Ooh, that's difficult, but you know I've always lived through the the issues that it's about learning. You know, you got uh, to stay alert to learn as much as possible. And and I would have done it even more when I was younger. So that's probably what I would tell myself. That's exactly what I've learned. So learn and do is the best, two big things. That's what I said to my three kids as well. You you, you got to try and learn as much as possible. You learn wherever you go. You learn from people you meet. You learn everywhere in the world. And you try to use that for something you can actually do. And what you should be doing is testing things, you know, and doing what you actually are passionate and happy about. And to Two of my kids have said, Well, I can't live from what I'm really passionate about. And I said, Why not? And they actually are today. So I think that life is about a collection of memories, and and you you really need to get out and do stuff and and don't be afraid. Try. You know, that's the best way to actually learn. And if you learn, you will be good at something. If you're good at something, life will be good. But I also like the idea of I
1: got the job temporarily and I've been at it for 30 years. It's always, you know, as in a way, you always see it as temporary. So we're learning, we're we're thinking what's going to be the next thing. Maybe it's more the same. Maybe it's not.
0: I, I started on a three month contract. <laughs> yeah. And eight years later. I don't why he's looking at me. That's a very odd. <laughs> He'd be looking at me. But that's a,
2: it's very strange.
1: Yes. And Malmö, what I know is there's a lot of murder there.
2: Yeah. We only murder other football teams. That's what we do. When they come to Malmö, <laughs> they're all scared. They're... We haven't lost in 49, 49 games, even to the big team. So even though we are a small football country and a small team. But again, Champions League yesterday, great stuff. Third time in seven years. It's Zlatan Ibrahimovic is from Malmo, right? Zlatan. Oh, he's my, my favorite. I saw him play when he was 12 years old. I followed him through in every club he's been since then. Yeah, wonderful player. Great character, by the way.
0: He was the same size back then at 12 than he is now. Just a giant Balkan, two meters
2: exactly. tall. He's a love or hate guy, right? <laughs> so Lars, if you
0: had to just pick one, what would be your favorite shipping company? I know this is a difficult Take your one. time. Take
2: your time. No, no, I, I always go for the best. So the answer is simple. Here, got to go, go, got to go with nurse here. You know, every time. He, he's. He, I'm going to call bias, but I don't we'll,
0: know. We'll accept no, no, it. we'll no. It's, it. it's
2: totally independent and just a view based on my 35 years. Yeah, professionally.
0: Is that somebody with a gun behind you?
2: <laughs> not at all. <laughs>
0: Look at the PR guys right there and just out of the frame. <laughs> we're, we're, we're here for the hard hitting stuff. No, people, no. people think yeah. we're just dad jokes, even though we're not supposed uh, to say that anymore. Hard hitting questions. Hard hitting. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, us. Uh, well, the Walter Cronkite of podcasting.
1: You have lived outside Sweden. Yeah. And when you did, what did you notice about your country when you were living outside that you don't think you would have otherwise seen? What did you kind of, what what, what kind of hit you when you were looking at Sweden from the outside?
2: I think what most people say is it's better than you think, uh, so you get things in perspective. But you know, when I lived abroad and also when I've traveled to all these countries, what, one thing I have always done is just spending my time with, with other expats or with other Swedes or Scandinavians when I'm living somewhere else. I try to get into the culture when I'm there. So you learn again when you're out or when you visit. But in reality, you get perspective on yourself and your own childhood and your own country. And, and you, you reach an I at least to come to the conclusions that it's pretty good. Back home, so and that's also why I stayed stationed in the, basically the same place uh, for the last thirty years. I think that the perspectives is good. It's good to learn about others, and you also you also find out that it's not so different either <laughs> wherever you go. Yeah, that's an important point. I, I learned that freedom
0: fries is not a a good alternative to French fries. It's not.
2: No. I don't think there are any alternatives to French fries, are there? No. Really? fortunately, no. Belgin, no. Fries, no. And that, now I think Waffle we've started fries. a diplomatic incident. Yeah. No, no, no digital Speaking details, of diplomatic incidents, safer. I learned from
1: watching The Bridge that Danes are fun and Swedes are not
0: fun. Is that is that true? That's
2: what the Danes think, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Please, please a, discuss.
0: These are the same people who put Carlsberg <laughs> as maybe the world's greatest beer. Yeah. No,
2: probably. <laughs> maybe, maybe, kind of. <laughs>
0: It's certainly the most present. Oh
1: yeah,
2: it is. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we where I live, south of Sweden, we've been a part of Denmark longer than we've been part of Sweden. So but the irony is that the dialect I speak Swedish in, the Danes don't understand. They understand Stockholm Swedish better. But, but we are very much alike. We are all Vikings. But I always say the Swedish Vikings were trading people. The really, really ones who, you know, went out and did other stuff. They were Norwegians and Danes for sure. Ah. And the ones with the big axes, oh, yeah. the pillaging came second. Those, yeah. First we Danish. first we trade. <laughs> if we don't like the price you're offering,
0: then we the then bad guys. we pillage
1: <laughs> the one with the with the axes with the Danes. Okay, got it.
0: Very clear. Yes. So, so, so the next the next uh, one we'll do is a sort of a, a Swedish flavored lightning round. Unfortunately, you are the second Swedish guest that we've had on the show, so we've run out of Abba references.
2: Yeah, we literally used them all. We're on. all grown up with them. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So. Give you one or two seconds to answer. Don't think about it. So,
2: uh ABBA or Avicii? If I have to choose Avicii, but both. But my real favorite Swedish band is called Kent. You should really look that up. They were great. They're not existing anymore, but great pop band, Kent. Kent. Okay. Right. This one is just coming to me
0: now Zlatan Ibrahimovic or Dolph Lundgren? That's not a question. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, flat on him,
0: oh, of course. He was in The Expendables. One, two, three, four, five, and six. Dolph Lundgren is Russian. Everybody Absolutely knows that.
2: Yeah. He, and he lost and He lost
0: to Sylvester Stallone, who's half his size. Tell me how that's possible in anything but a Rocky movie.
2: He shamed Sweden. Yeah, you know, Sylvester Stallone should have done one of the Hobbits. Yo Gandalf. Ding, 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 ding. Yo Gandalf. Yeah, Adrian, I'm afraid of orcs. <laughs> how many
0: pieces of Ikea furniture do you own? Is it below a thousand or above? Over, uh, over. I love
2: IKEA. I don't have a single piece in my house right now. But when I moved to Brussels, I actually funded the entire house with IKEA. They just came home to us and put everything in. So I lived in an IKEA showroom basically for six <laughs> years in Brussels. So you I'm, uh, I'm guilty of shot. Now making the connection to trade, IKEA was the first authorized economic operator in the world, by the way, mm. which is kind of interesting. They're number one, two thousand, they were the first AEO in the world. They were the modern
0: day Vikings. Really- mm-hmm. Trade Vikings. Yeah. Yeah. But the paperwork. bookshelf, Billy did
1: it. Yeah, But the paperwork's very hard to follow. Step one, step no, two, no. step three. And it's all in Swedish.
2: Uh, that's a myth. That's a myth.
1: <laughs> you never have the right wrench. So in uh, I mean, since this is a customs-oriented uh, podcast episode, we follow a lot of things that are seized at the Swiss-French border, such as snake exchanges or 60 kilos of spring rolls. Or tiger beer. So, so <laughs> anything interesting that you've seen inter- intercepted at international borders that you can that you can speak of?
0: Dolph Lundgren
1: posters.
2: Oh, that's a long answer. I've seen everything from wildlife and snakes to. I have a really interesting, I was at one place where the famous Swedish tennis player Bjorn Borg came in after winning, not Wimbledon, but something else. And he actually had gold with him and, and it was seized because he didn't declare it. But it was really the, the win he did in Dubai or wherever. So, but I think my favorite of all, of course, is is the Apollo, Apollo 11, isn't it? You know, that the crew of Apollo 11 actually was the first thing that happened when they came down as was uh, U.S. customs coming along and say, do you have anything to declare? <laughs> and I think that, you know, that's what customs, <laughs> spaceships, alien stones, whatever. People so,
0: think uh, the IRS will find you. The internal revenue will system. Find, you. Customs will find you first. Yeah. It, it wasn't an irs agent who picked up who picked up the armstrong jules verne when he came from the bottom of the sea yeah all right
1: so what is your favorite kebab globally if you have not been to geneva if you've been to Geneva, of course, we can get much more specific. Uh,
2: I hate, I don't know if I can actually say this. I'm not really a kebab man, to be honest. It's a hot dog, it's the hot the famous hot dog stand outside customs in Reykjavik. You've heard about that one, right? Where Madonna, Bruce Springsteen, Bill Clinton, me, everybody else have been there that actually matters. Uh, and eating the hot dog. So go there, it's a wonderful place. You know, you can get a hot dog and you get a lot of other stuff, like volcanoes. It's
1: sort of like the 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 kebab stand underneath the train station in Olten here in Switzerland.
0: Is that a good one? Uh,
1: beer. I mean, when you get
0: there, you're happy to get off the train, for sure. That was also the last place Rob was robbed. I'll
2: take, I'll take your advice the next time in Geneva we go for kebab, right?
0: <laughs> Correct. I did we not know that Reykjavik has hot dog. That's one of the only two things they export, that and uh, power lifters. It used to be also banking crisis. They were exporting <laughs> banking I think crisis. aluminium
2: football players, handball players, I think a couple of fish maybe as well, but then you've covered it. <laughs> and data. And human human genome data. Yeah, and Bitcoin yeah. mines.
1: So we've got to wrap it up. The most, Perhaps the yeah. most important I, question. I,
0: I didn't want to ask this. Rob put this in there and put my name next to it. So I guess being a good sport that I am, I'm going to pull a Ron Burgundy. We want to know, have you ever been to Staten Island? And if so, Why?
2: What did I do there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wasn't the first place I went to when I when I came over uh, and have been there many times. I normally go to nearby place, New Jersey, because of a Springsteen country, and and Springsteen is my big, big favorite. But I have been. I've taken the ferry, of course. You have to do that. So I think the board. There's a famous boardwalk, isn't there, on the east side, right? That's where I've been. I hate to say it, it's very touristic, uh, t- tourism type of thing. But I've been there. This is a man <laughs> after my own heart. He's the only one who knows the boardwalk.
0: You mean the Staten Island? Yeah, and the boardwalk. I've met him. There's a boardwalk. <laughs> yeah, he knows there's a boardwalk. Well, Lars, I, I think that about just does it. I mean, I- I'm like you, we you survived. Said, you've survived the
2: the lightning round. Uh, no, no, it was my pleasure. It's really thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it. I, I'm, I'm a great fan, and you know, it's great to be on.
1: So we wanted to keep you updated on a few critical uh, news items that have come in the past week. Because as we know, all news is local. All news is local. Everything's local. Everything is news. Therefore, that's why it's going in here. So one thing I was, you know, we've been monitoring, of course, is the airline industry. I think uh, people, you know, probably already aware Brazilian airline Goal has been forced by that's a... That's not a joke. It's actually true. <laughs> it's this an actual Goal. airline. Has been forced by a union action to pay for female employees' nails, waxing, and makeup. So the union rightly argued that women flight attendants had to do things their male colleagues did not, that were required by the company. The company said guidelines were only recommendations, but the appeals court said the company must pay about 39 uh, Swiss francs per month equivalent for these services
0: so that, you know, these 39 francs should cover the nails, waxing, makeup. I mean, I I don't know. My immediate response is that, as everybody knows, I am really big on hair products. And I don't think 39 francs covers. Doesn't sound like enough. Doesn't cover my hair wax or hairspray. I guess, I guess what we're all wondering is, does this cover a Brazilian? Uh, Maybe an Argentinian if you're feeling cheap. I don't know. Michelle says no. I don't know.
1: Let's find out. Perhaps more importantly, and I guess this really trumps pretty much everything we've said already. ABBA is back. They're releasing an album. And I think it's time for you to get your blonde hair dye and go-go boots out because uh, this is this is actually happening. I have to Google what a go-go boot is, but yes. So they split up in 1982. And uh, where were you? I'm, I'm sure that was a big moment in your
0: life. Where were you in 1982 when you heard the news? I was the twinkle of the twinkle of the twinkle of my father's eye. So three twinkles ago. Really? Yeah. I was I was not born until like a presidential term and a half later. Okay.
1: But they still made a big impact on your life. Like Top Gun came out before I was born. But I was important to you. May I, may I propose that? Yeah. So the album's called Voyage. It's it's about musical expression. It's not about money. It's not. I mean, I know it's being released it's in the lucrative money. Christmas market, but it's not about that. It's about the art. I'm guessing it's maybe, however, well compensated. They turned down a billion dollars in the uh, early <sighs> 2000s to come back together. So it could, yeah, be, okay. could be well paid. Yeah, I'm okay. not sure.
0: Yeah, okay. They turned down a billion dollars. <laughs> hey... <laughs> We'll turn it down too. Yeah. When yeah, we I'm get sure there. we will. Yeah. I'm trying to cut you out and take 500 million for myself.
1: Perhaps what's more disturbing is it'll go along with an innovative tour concept in which digital, and I'm absolutely serious here, digital versions of ABBA's band members will be accompanied by a 10-piece live band performing their greatest hits for 21 pounds. Would you pay 21 pounds to see digital ABBA avatars go on tour?
0: I paid twenty five bucks for like the the microphone covers <laughs> yes. we're using right now. So yes, I would. Yes. You would
1: go out there and watch avatars.
0: Yeah, oh, I, I have my virtual reality thing on that that I use for the. Could this be like my a metaverse
1: thing? Like you could be a me- everybody could be in concert and not be in concert.
0: I think this is not fun. That's what I think. I think this is like a, a fad. No. Sorry, Abba. Uh, I'm not taking a chance. On I think that. it sounds incredibly lame. I'm not going. Because it's really all about money, money, money. <laughs> How could I let that happen? This this will be their Waterloo. <laughs> this will be Abba's How Waterloo. How could I let that happen? Because <laughs> you just did, and that's the way the cookie crumbles. Okay,
1: folks, that's it for local news. But we'll stay classy, San Diego. Keep monitoring the wires for you. That about wraps up this week's episode. Brought to you by
0: Artie's Left Wrist, and I'm looking at you, luxury watch industry. ABBA's avatars and, of course, FC Malmö. Mo. And don't forget Vanadium, which is the atomic number of 23. Also named after the Greek god of vanity, which is very apropos for Nothing this to do with us. podcast. Nothing to do. At all. We, of course, would like to thank our guest, Lars Carlson, for talking to us about the future of borders and customs. And also why Marisk is probably the best shipping company on it. Hashtag Denmark. (laughs) We also want to thank Michelle for helping in producing this episode. And also don't forget to download all of our episodes if you haven't listened already. And subscribe to make sure you catch the next one coming out very soon. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or really anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. They do help, and we know you have the time. If you're reviewing so many products and changing your buying behavior, you can for sure review this podcast take a chance on us and review the damn thing. you can also follow us on twitter at tradesplaining or on instagram at trade.splaining or email us your questions the old-fashioned way at trade.splaining at gmail.com once again that's trade.splaining at gmail.com stay safe out there and of course listen responsibly